share part one of my interview with Dr. Amelia May, previously Dr. Amelia Poncher. She is a pelvic health specialist, and we talk about all things deep core muscles, core, trunk, and pelvic floor. There's so much confusion around these things. Should I be doing Kegels? Should I be doing crunches? Should I not be doing crunches? How can I strengthen my pelvic floor? What is the pelvic floor? How can I strengthen my deep muscles? How do I breathe? Should I be flexing my abs during my workouts? All of these things we address in today's episode. And I think this is a really great episode because the evidence around this field, around the world of pelvic health is changing a lot. And Dr. Amelia is kind of in the front lines of what's going on and how they are treating patients with pelvic floor issues, how to prevent those pelvic floor issues. Because as we talk about in this episode, pelvic floor issues can cause a myriad of issues in your body, including back pain, hip pain, all the, all those things. So I think this episode is really good. We actually ended up dividing this episode into two parts. So this first part will be kind of for the general public of any gender, because we all have pelvic floor muscles and we all have deep core muscles and we can all benefit from this information, whether or not you've had a baby or plan to have a baby. And then next week we are releasing part two, which will be more focused on pre and postnatal. So Amelia May, previously Poncher, is a doctor of physical therapy and she specializes in women's health and pelvic health. She is the director of physical therapy at Genesis PT and wellness in Dallas, Texas, where she also treats patients throughout the week. She has a background in sports and orthopedics. She previously worked with high school athletes and adult Olympic weightlifting athletes. So she is the perfect person to talk about this stuff because she really understands people who exercise and love to exercise. She also loves helping folks return to exercise after injury and pain, pelvic floor dysfunction, and or pregnancy postpartum. She holds a certification in functional dry needling and has completed a multitude of pelvic floor and women's health related continuing education courses over the years. So please enjoy part one of this interview with Amelia. Welcome to the podcast, Dr. Amelia. Thank you for being here. I'm so excited to be here, Shannon. So thanks for asking me. Yay. Well, Amelia is a wealth of knowledge and we were just talking off air about how the world of pelvic floor, uh, women's health is just changing a lot. And it's changed a lot since I was a practicing physical therapist, since I was in school. And, um, so I'm excited to have you on to kind of talk about all the myths that are floating around to educate on both the general public and to like postpartum expecting mamas, all of the things. So let's, let's get right into it. Um, let's start by talking about what the deep core trunk musculature is and what is the function of our deep core trunk muscles? Yes. I feel like I could rant about this for hours. So this might seem like a lot, but honestly, I'm giving a shortened version. Good. So everyone bear with us. Um, I like to describe the core as what you would call like a canister or a soda can. Cause I think often, especially I'm sure you can appreciate Shannon in like the fitness realm, this gets described as mainly just like our abdominal muscles. And then maybe sometimes you'll hear the back muscles in there, which is fabulous. Cause at least they're getting all the way around that core, that trunk area, but there's also a top and a bottom to the core. So that's why I like to describe it as like a soda can, because the main goal of your core is to pressurize your trunk. 
So if air cannot enter and exit, then there is no function of the core because pressure is the biggest deal. So in my world, I describe that top and bottom of the core as actually being like the most important parts of it. And then the abdominal muscles, the back muscles, your glutes are secondary to that. So if you think about your core being like a soda can, imagine like when a soda is closed, all the pressure's inside, you haven't opened it, liquid's in there, you know, we're good to go. Remember how like most times you can't really do anything to that canister or soda can, whatever you want to call it. When there's all that pressure in there, it's pretty strong and sturdy. You can't really do much to it. It's just there. But as soon as you let the pressure out and the liquid out, well, now that can is very malleable. You can crush it however you want. The core in our body functions the exact same way. So if we are not pressurized well, then dysfunction happens. If we are pressurized well, then we're strong and we're sturdy and our limbs can move off of that sturdy trunk base. So if you're talking about the things that make up that core, or that pressure system. Yes, of course, you've got your like three different layers of your abdominal muscles, your obliques, your six pack abs called your rectus abdominis, and then your transverse abdominis, which is super important to the pelvic floor too. And then you've got your back muscles on the backside, like your multifidi and all those fun scientific names that the regular people don't care about. But, um, you know, outside of those that wrap around the top of your core is your diaphragm, which is our breathing muscle. And so that's why in my practice, especially in lots of pelvic floor PTs talk a lot about breathing, which is one of the things I so appreciate about Evlo and how you guys have been really good at instrumenting that into your program. Um, even like regardless of pelvic floor stuff, I just hear you guys talking about it a lot, which is great. And then the bottom of our core is your pelvic floor, of course, which most of us have written off for a long time until we age, because as we know, like tissues change, um, hormones change for females. So that will change your pelvic floor. And then of course, babies are the biggest one. But even without those factors, your pelvic floor can still create problems because it's three layers of muscle that sit in and around the bottom of the pelvis. And so constantly that bottom of our pelvis area and the diaphragm are working together like a piston where they move up and down as we breathe because they're trying to accommodate all of that pressure change and they're trying to manage pressure. So that was a very long winded answer to your question. No, it makes but, so much sense. And the canister, uh, analogy is like very good. That's, I hadn't heard that. That was really good. Yeah. So, so the pelvic floor, I think a lot of people understand how to work like our six pack muscles, our obliques, maybe even our back muscles. Um, we do that a lot in Evlo, like we're doing a lot of crunches or oblique twists and cobras and things like right. that to work those superficial muscles. When we're talking about the, the pelvic floor muscles um, and the diaphragm, do you recommend the average person? We're not talking about, we'll, we'll get to postpartum mamas and we'll get to expecting mamas here in a moment, sure. but just for the average person who maybe isn't expecting, um, hasn't had a child or, um, is even like male, how do you recommend training both the diaphragm and the pelvic floor, or should we just be integrating it into exercises like crunches and cobras that we're already doing? No, that's such a good question. Um, and probably like the biggest mystery in terms of public floor therapy, because there's um, kind of like massive debates about Kegels going on right now, especially yes. in our practice, because my boss is a huge proponent of um, we don't need Kegels and functional movement, but it's hard because Kegels have been kind of the only standard of research on pelvic floor training for obvious reasons. It's really the only thing that seems like we can control it. And for research, as you know, like everything has to be very much, um, substantiated. You know what I mean? Like it has to be cut and dry yes. to create results around it. And that's really hard to do with females in, in general, just because of hormone changes. So all that being said, um, 
how you manage the pelvic floor as a day-to-day person or just a regular human being trying to be conscious of it. Um, honestly, your breathing, that would be my number one answer. Knowing how to properly breathe is going to help your pelvic floor do its job. And unlike most of our other muscles, um, but similar to what the diaphragm is doing, our pelvic floor should be very automatic. So if you imagine the pelvic floor being like a trampoline, imagine what happens when you step on that trampoline, right? It accepts that weight, but it drops down and it kind of relaxes, but it's also expanding, but it doesn't break because it can accept that pressure because it's been trained to do that, right? It's flexible. It's mobile. Pelvic floor is the same way when it creates or when pressure is created within our abdominal cavity, it's supposed to accept that pressure and drop down. So think like when we take an inhale or when you're trying to poop, for example, So those things are natural occurrences that happen. And then as that pressure goes away, pelvic floor is supposed to recoil back to its normal position. Think about like, um, not necessarily a contraction per se, but I guess you could think of it like that because it is shortening technically, but it's also ascending. So the pelvic floor, unlike our other muscles, it's not just lengthening and shortening, it's going up and down because its range of motion does not surround one joint, like per se our bicep, right? Like when we flex our bicep, our elbow bends, when we relax it, it straightens, but the pelvic floor is moving up and down and it's surrounding four joints, two hip joints, a pubic bone and a tailbone. You can't really see that one effect happening. So that's why it's a little more intricate. And that's why we say like the training for the pelvic floor is going to happen via other things like hip strengthening, like your breathing, etc. That's why we don't necessarily need something like Kegels because you're just contracting a muscle and relaxing the muscle, which is valuable to know how to coordinate and do that. I'm not saying that, but for the regular person, or even I would say for pregnant or postpartum folks, that skill is not necessarily needed outside of just like knowing how to do it. Um, but your pelvic floor will be better benefited in literally just knowing how to breathe correctly, which is called diaphragmatic breathing. Two follow-up questions to that first off, excellent answer. I want to talk about how to diaphragmatic breathe. If you should do that during exercise. And then number two is, um, just so I'm not forgetting it, but we'll, we'll follow. You can answer that one yes, first. And yes. then the second question that I'll have for you is, should you be doing a Kegel during something like a crunch? So let's start with the breathing. So how, how yeah. do you diaphragmatic breathe? And should you be doing that all throughout exercise? Like while you're exercising? Yeah. So ideally, of course you would be doing this all the time, day-to-day exercise, sleep, right? Um, because it's like the most efficient form of breathing. It's going to exchange the most O2 and CO2. So you'll feel better. You'll have like more energy, et cetera. But ideally I tell people, if nothing else, doing it when you exercise is going to be so beneficial because that will start to translate over into your day-to-day life. Cause honestly, like not of us, not all of us are perfect 24 seven. I still struggle some days to be like, Oh my God, I've been mouth breathing for the last five minutes, you know? But, um, I mean, it, it takes, it takes time. It takes a lot of practice, but this will help in a lot of different areas of your life. Like I said, sleep, for example, which I know Evlo talks a ton about, which is amazing because it's so good for progress of just like muscle gain and all that. Yep. But, um, you know, a lot of things depend on our breathing that we don't really have anything to control about in terms of evolution, like our sinus cavities, um, the shape of our palate and our mouth, the food we eat, things like that. So for the most part in what you can control, diaphragmatic breathing is like the one thing we can do. And ideally what that means is that we are inhaling through our nose via using our diaphragm to inhale and create that negative pressure to pull air into our lungs. And then we exhale out of our mouths. Think more of like a purse slip, like you're going to go to blow bubbles, blow through a straw, blow out candles, you know, thinking like your mouth is a little tighter rather than like a sighing exhale. Mm -hmm. 
Not to say sighing exhales aren't good for some people. That's a whole other conversation about like rib cage position and stuff. Um, but I would say for the most of general population, um, purse flips is going to be more effective just because we can blow out more air that way. It's more effective. And the longer your exhale is, the more that your bottom of your core, like pelvic floor and your transverse abdominis can kick on without you having to think about it. So that actually goes into like kind of your follow-up question, which means, um, when we are doing any sort of physical activity, especially abdominal activities, theoretically, you should not have to Kegel when you are doing those activities Because if you're doing your proper breathing and you're exhaling where the effort is, most of the time that's going to kick on the things that need to kick on if things are working reflexively in your pelvic floor and your abdominal muscles. Also, though, when your transverse abdominus is contracted, your pelvic floor should be. So they work together because of their attachment at the pubic bone. So if you've got that good lower abdominal contraction, your pelvic floor should be doing all the right things. If it's not, it's hard to, it's hard to realize that on yourself sometimes, honestly, but once people figure out what that feels like after, you know, like working with us or doing it for long enough, you'll, you'll kind of like, no. And there's a very set amount of things that the pelvic floor will set in motion if something is not right. And I'm sure we'll talk about that. Um, but you would, you would know if you weren't creating the right pressure, but usually the breath gets the job done, which is why it's so important because it's theoretically very easy to do. Yes. That again, excellent, excellent, very thorough answer. <laughs> more follow-up questions when you are breathing. So I cue the purse lip breathing a lot, mainly with, um, like flex, like trunk flexion. So rectus abdominis work, oblique work, crunches, things like that. Is that something that you recommend doing in every exercise, not just with trunk flexion, every exercise. Okay. Yes. Totally. I would ideally say yes. So we always say like blow before you go or exhale where the effort is. And you hear this a lot in like the postpartum prenatal realm because they really need the help to generate some abdominal force because there's a growing human in the way. But honestly, I think it's really effective for everybody just because most of us, um, it's a lot to coordinate multiple things at once, like thinking about contracting your abs, breathing and doing the limb motions. Like it's just a lot, like our brains just can't take it. So if you can just do the breath, the rest of that stuff should be happening. So, you know, squats, lunges, deadlifts, inhale on the way down, exhale on the way up because you're fighting gravity Um, and cardio based things. It's even like it's an endurance component, right? So let's say you're going for a run or a walk or whatever. It's more just about focusing on your diaphragmatic breathing for as long as you can, because at some point cardio effort will take over and you will have to breathe through your mouth just because like, you know, blood volume is so high, blood pressure, all that. You're just going to feel like you need to breathe through your mouth to try to get more air in. So it's more just about like trying to breathe diaphragmatically for as long as you can. That makes, that makes a ton of sense. So when, cause we hear a lot in the fitness world and I was trained as a fitness instructor, you know, over a decade ago, you always want your core on, you always like squeeze your core, squeeze your core in every single thing that we're doing. And I've mm-hmm. actually gotten away from that because I think what people do is they just like bear down. So that could be a better cue for someone. It's just like, don't worry so much about like flexing as hard as you can. If you're doing something like a step up or you're working your arms or you're working something where you're not targeting your trunk muscles necessarily is in, let me know if you agree is not thinking about like bearing down and flexing your abs so much, but just diaphragmatic breathing. And then you will have that stability through that exhale. Is that what you recommend? 1000%. Yes. Because also bearing down probably has its time in its place at some point. Think like power lifters because they're trying to get so much weight over their head. It's the only way they can do that, right? They're generating so much pressure and force. 
Um, you'll hear about it sometimes. Again, I keep going back to pregnancy and postpartum, but it's just like the common situations you think of. But you'll hear strategies like that for pushing, even though theoretically that's a whole other conversation and not 100% correct. But I would say yes, because again, when you bear down, which is what you would think of when you're like straining for a bowel movement, like you're really struggling, um, that is not necessarily advantageous to your pelvic floor because you're adding more pressure than what's necessary for it to take on. So not to say your pelvic floor is not resilient. It is. It's working for you all the time. It's badass. It just, everything needs a break once in a while, right? And something doesn't want to have to work harder than it needs to. Because down the line, if you continue to bear down with every poop, with every big lift, with anything that's heavy, um, over time, that's going to have an effect, right? And that effect could be prolapse. It could be urine leakage. It could be back pain. I mean, just a slew of things could go wrong. So it's just more effective if you create an exhale instead. And also to your point, um, people do end up flexing their abdominal muscles all day long. And I especially find that females just due to like societal pressures and high-waisted pants, we're all sucking in all the freaking time. And I'm very much like, a proponent of this as well. I do this a lot on accident, but that in itself can cause pelvic floor problems. So just think like day-to-day wise, you're doing that more than you're exercising. You know, that's like 23 hours a day. You could be doing that or whatever. And that itself can create a lot of downward pressure on your pelvic floor. So over time, that's going to have an effect too. So just letting your abs go is really positive. Yes. Especially when you're not trying to target them when the force isn't through the trunk, like just, that's why I'm always cute. I'm, you will hardly ever hear me cue, like pull your abs up and in, pull your abs up and in when we're doing something like for the lower body or for the arms. Um, so I'm really happy to hear that this is, um, also what you recommend as well. So let's talk a little bit about this. You saying like sucking in, like made me think of this. What does it feel like to contract your transverse abdominis? And how do you recommend getting in better tune with that when you're doing something like trunk work, core work? Yeah, a very common issue, right? Um, This is a hard one to explain without somebody being able to like physically feel it just because the two can feel really similar, right? Like, just like you said, sometimes people will use like belly button to spine or act like you're sucking in to try to cue the abdominal muscles, which to a degree, I totally understand what they're going for. But for the lay person that might completely derail them. Um, because typically when we suck in, we're thinking about like, somebody's going to come up and punch you in the stomach. I'm going to flex as hard as I can, right? That's going to get the six pack abs going more than the transverse abdominis because the transverse abdominis, as you know, is like so deep in there. And it's not going to be the first thing to go because it's proximity to the skin is not as close as the six pack abs. And we use our six pack abs often in day-to-day life, you know, to get out of bed, to roll. I mean, all those types of activities to lay down. So most of us have actually really strong six pack abs, whether you can see them or not. And so I think that's where the line gets a little bit blurred. So I prefer to cue thinking about like below the belly button, because typically that's where you're going to feel your transverse abdominis because it's so deep, anything higher than the belly button, you're going to end up feeling obliques or six pack abs more often. Um, And something that's kind of easy for people to think about is when you, when you take um, like a deep breath to cough or you sneeze or you laugh, like typically you'll feel your transverse abdominis just inherently kick on in those activities. So sometimes it can be good to like feel down there as you do those and be like, okay, this is, this is the thing I'm looking for. So I'll either cue people to like, imagine like you're bringing your two hip bones to midline. Think like you're going to zip up a zipper from your pubic bone to belly button. 
Um, another good one that females really understand is like, if you've put on a pair of jeans that you haven't worn in a while and they're feeling a little tight and you get the zipper like halfway, what would you do to get that last little bit at the top, right? So anything to think about really activating from the bottom to the top of your belly rather than like a crunch or a setup where you're going top to bottom. Hopefully yeah. that makes sense in words. Yes, that makes a lot of sense. I also heard from a training I took at one point, would love to hear your thoughts about this is say like, ha, like really, I don't want to like scream in my mic, but say like, (laughs) say like, ha, like really forcibly and loud. Mm -hmm. And you kind of get that, like, like that pressure. Is Mm -hmm. that, would that be correct? Is that something you would recommend? Yeah. I think that's tough to do in repetitive activities, like abdominal activities. Oh yes. 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 But definitely that is it. And we use just to get the feeling just to get like the sensation of like, Oh, that's what that feels like. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Okay. Same, same idea as if you were to do like a strong purse lip breath of like a, right. It's the same idea. Just sound to it. So yeah. Yes. Yes. Amazing. We're not talking about like pregnant mamas or postpartum for now, just the general public. What are some signs and symptoms that you might be having some pelvic floor issues? Like what are some early signs and symptoms that like, maybe this is something you need to kind of focus on? Yeah, I think most people are shocked to hear that the stuff you think of in relation to pregnancy and postpartum is extremely common to the general population. It's just more talked about in relation to babies because people feel more comfortable talking about it because they have an excuse to tie it to, if that makes sense. So the regular day-to-day human, male or female, can have all the pelvic floor dysfunction that has nothing to do with babies. And I actually probably see just as much of this in the normal population as we do in pregnant or postpartum females. Um pregnant people, I should say. So, um, you know, pelvic floor dysfunction can come in all forms. And sometimes you might not even realize it's pelvic floor dysfunction because just like other things, it can refer pain to other areas. So things like low back and hip pain are really common. I find that a lot of folks who have been to physical therapy or chiropractic or whatever, they've been kind of through the gamut of things for years. And they're like, I cannot get this back pain to go away. And they somehow end up in our door because they are just like going through all the things. And it was their pelvic floor. That was the problem the whole time. And in like one session, they're like, I feel better after one session. And it's not hundred percent, but it's way more than they've had in years. So back and hip pain are really common. Um, Issues with bowel movements are another big one that most people notice right away. So meaning you're not going poop every day or, um, and I'm talking just like one time a day is all that's needed, or you're struggling with bowel movements. Like it takes you more than two minutes to get on the toilet and poop and get off. Or you're feeling like you're really having to bear down and strain with every bowel movement, or you are having like continual hemorrhoids come and go. Those are all pretty good signs that your pelvic floor is not doing well because your pelvic floor muscles, some of them surround your rectum. So they can cause issues with stool trying to come through. So that's really common. Every person has to poop. So it's an easy way to figure that out. Um, Any sort of urinary dysfunction can be related to your pelvic floor. So feeling like you have a UTI, but you keep having negative cultures, going to the bathroom more than once an hour or even more than that, like every 30 minutes, Um, going to the bathroom a lot just in case sometimes can cause pelvic floor issues or vice versa. Um, Not feeling fully empty after you go to the bathroom, whether that's peeing or pooping, any sort of urine leakage. So you don't have to have kids or be pregnant to have that happen. I know lots of women who have had that since they were like teenagers. Mm -hmm. Um, Yeah, really common. And then um, prolapse symptoms like that are some of the things I just talked about, but also like a heaviness down in the vaginal space. Um, That can feel like a tampon is coming out when you're not wearing a tampon or like something's in between your legs or just like pressure in that area. And then sometimes even things relating to um, 
just like pubic bone pain or tailbone pain can be pelvic floor problems. I usually recommend that anyone with tailbone pain goes to pelvic floor PT before regular PT, not because I'm knocking regular PTs, but just like as a past orthopedic PT, I never knew what to do with tailbone pain. I was just like, I have no idea, but if we can get into your pelvic floor, oh my God, so helpful. If someone is experiencing any of these symptoms, do you recommend a pause on doing more traditional core work like crunches and back work and go see a pelvic floor PT? Or do you think that you can continue to train your core in conjunction? Like in other words, is it dangerous or could it make the problem worse to continue to do kind of traditional trunk and core work? You'll probably laugh at this answer more than everyone else, Shannon, but it totally depends, which is like the biggest PT answer in the world. <laughs> yes. um, gosh, do you remember how much we hated that in school when our hated. teachers would say that? We'd be like, I'm like give just give me answer. the answer. Yeah. Yes, yeah, I just want just the answer. Um, I think it definitely depends. It depends on what type of workout they're doing, what their instructor is doing. So if it was like Evlo, I would be like, yes, go do your thing you know, I'll tell you like a certain amount of things that you should be looking out for. And if it's these things, you know, pause or modify. If it's something that requires a ton of pressure, like heavy weightlifting, CrossFit, Olympic weightlifting, um, running. um, Oh, I'm missing something. I don't know. One of those types of activities I'm blanking at this moment. Um, Those types of things, I would say if you're having symptoms, whatever that be leakage, back pain, I don't know, um, during the activity immediately after or within 12 hours of doing it, then yes, we either either need to really modify what you're doing or we need to take a pause. But honestly, I really hate telling people to stop doing something that they love doing, especially if it's, you know, I mean, I don't totally love this mindset, but like if it's a de-stressor for them or if it's something, um, that's just a really positive light in their life or they feel like they need it. I I don't want to add stress and anxiety by telling them to stop doing something. So I will try to help them as much as I can to modify the crap out of that movement. It might not be as effective as they want it to be in terms of the intensity, but it's going to get to the same end goal. So, you know, let's say, for example, if they're having trouble with back squats with a barbell, then I'm like, maybe let's try front squats. Do you have issues there? Nope. Great. You're going to do front squats only for now. Or is it like we need to decrease the weight or we need to go like in less range of motion? We're always going to try to work around it first. I don't know if that fully answers your question, but it it does. It It does. I guess I'm thinking, I'm in particular thinking of our burn class on Wednesdays where we're doing, you know, a few sets of crunches that are, that feel intense. So I, I guess I was thinking like, if someone's having some of these issues with their pelvic floor, should they be doing, you know, four, five, six, seven sets of crunches every week? Yeah, I still want to say it depends, don't you? Yes. But I would say like if they're doing the proper breathing and they feel as though they're not having issues with it in that moment or because you guys are doing like the ball crunches instead or something, then I'd be like, yes, that's a great modification. If they're still having symptoms and they can't continue to um, step it back a little bit for modification reasons, then yeah, I'd be like, okay, maybe just skip burn, maybe do yoga flow instead or, you know, do a a build at whatever class they want to do instead. Yeah. Or maybe isometrics would be better served for that person instead of doing like big dynamic crunches, like just holding an isometric, yeah. practicing the things they're learning in PT, like the totally. wrapping and the breathe, diaphragmatic yeah. breathing, things like that. Yeah. Sometimes I'll just tell people like substitute your PT exercise in a place that feels organic. So let's say it's crunches. And I told you, let's do like a dead bug instead. I don't know. I'm just thinking of random, but like insert that into there. So you're still doing a workout with the class you want to be in. You're just modifying in that way. That's great, great advice. And super easy for people to get their, their PT exercises in anyways, because they're like, I'm already 100%. working out. So I'm here. I can now do I, it's two for one. 
Yeah, exactly. Yes. So, okay. I'm going to switch gears a little bit because this is excellent. And you've already answered a bunch of my questions that I had written down, just like in, in, within your answers, I want to talk about hypo repressives. Can you explain what those are and your thoughts on them? Yeah, I won't lie to you. I feel very mixed on, on hypopressive activities. I've had patients who have done that in the past and have told me not negative things about it, just that they weren't sure how helpful it was. But if you look at the research and I actually was looking at an article about this like two weeks ago, um, just cause there's times where I like randomly dive into stuff like that. And yeah, same. the study, yeah, the study I looked at though, I can't remember what year it was from. So, you know, take this with a grain of salt, but, um, it was basically saying regular pelvic floor training, then biofeedback training, which just means like basically with biofeedback electrodes are inserted onto the pelvic floor muscles and they'll have you like relax your pelvic floor and contract your pelvic floor and try to get you to feel the differences. So you can feel like you can control it and you can see on this like wavelength what's happening. So basically very like isometric type stuff. Um, and then also hypopressive activities, um, which sorry, I should take a step back to tell people what that means. Basically, my understanding is people will do a breath, hold their breath after they're done exhaling, and then perform like an abdominal contraction. That's like one version that I've seen. I think there can be slight variations of that. Um, but that that's kind of my understanding. And then you can add activity with that or not, or you can just do it like that. You're just like, it's basically like a breathing exercise with an added thing to it. Yeah. Um, so with that, basically, the again, the study I was looking at was like, pelvic floor muscle training. So think like movement, exercise, stretching, and then biofeedback training, and then hypopressives. And it basically said all were great together or all were great separately. Like it didn't sway me one way or the other. It basically just said like all are effective on their own, or they can be combined. Um, but again, my reservation always when looking at pelvic floor research, and this might be like kind of a negative thing in me is just like research is limited on women in general. Like we talked about research is so behind in terms of pelvic floor training and because pelvic floor training, like you could say for most PT is so individualized and different from person to person. Although our goals might be the same, the way we go about those goals are very different. I don't give everybody the exact same exercises. Um, cause there's also been studies that say like the exercises that are going to do the best or the rehab that's going to be the most appropriate are the ones that mean the most to that patient. And that's been like actually studied. So if they understand what they're doing and it matches towards what they want to do, that's going to be the most effective. So how the heck are you going to research that from one person to the next, you know? Yes. So I honestly, I don't know how I feel about it. Um, cause there's just not enough like research data for me to say one way or the other. And I am an evidence-based person. I like to follow the research. Yes. I, I don't feel that it's inherently bad. But I also don't feel it's inherently good because how often are you holding your breath um, unless you're like an Olympic weightlifter and you're constantly doing that to lift heavy loads? Um, and I don't really feel like you should be holding your breath in day-to-day -day life because you're building up that CO2, which is good in some respect because then you have to replace it with a lot of O2. But mm -hmm. I don't know. I just yes. feel so mixed on it. I don't love yes. it. I don't hate it. I don't personally use it. Got it. Got it. Jury's out, but you, you think that maybe there's, maybe there's like better things you should be doing. Like what we talked about with the, with the diaphragmatic breathing, the transverse domestic engagement things like that. Yeah. Cause I just feel like if you were going to do something repetitive, like a workout class or a hit class or go on a run, like when the heck are you going to have time to hold your breath? I just, yeah. I don't know. I don't find it very like functional is I guess yeah. my overarching opinion. I see that makes total sense. Makes total sense. So before we get into pregnancy and postpartum, 
let's wrap up just kind of like the talk on, on the general public. If someone is having these symptoms and it's so interesting, like people that come to me with back pain, I, I am like, maybe you should look into going to see a, a pelvic health specialist, a pelvic health PT. What, when should you go to, when should you go? Like we talked about, if you're having any of those symptoms, definitely go see a pelvic floor PT or pelvic health PT. But can you talk about like, um, you can just make an appointment, right? Like direct, most states have direct access. Right. I guess my question is, is like, when would you recommend going to see someone like you? I mean, I'm biased, of course. So I would be like, yes, always go to a pelvic PT first. I mean, especially as a female, right? Like our bodies work a little bit differently since all our parts are internal. So um, how we manage pressure is a little bit tougher compared to males because their parts are already outside. So I mean, again, I'm biased. I would say just go to a pelvic PT when you feel like you're having back pain, just like you would eventually go to a regular PT, right? You get to a point where you're like, I'm not managing this well on my own, or it's hindering my day-to-day activities, or I can't do X, Y, and Z because of this pain. But if you feel like that's not accessible to you, because most pelvic PTs um, that are up to times with the research and yada, yada are um, out of network. So I realize that is a cost that some people can't take on, although tangent, it might be the same as in network at the end of the day. Um, But yeah, I would say whenever you feel like you would have to get help from a healthcare professional, regardless, just maybe veer to a pelvic PT rather than a Cairo rather than a regular orthopedic PT. Again, I'm not bashing them. They're great. Just again, as you might remember as an orthopedic PT, this stuff was not talked about. We had one class on it in PT school, which is better than some PT programs, but uh, it's definitely nothing about what I know today. Yeah. So that would be a recommendation. But if, um, if that's not the case, I would say like, especially if you're having something like hip and back pain, plus some of those other more like pelvic floor type things like leakage issues with pooping, painful intercourse is one I did not mention, um, heaviness in the pelvis, painful periods, abdominal pain, things like that. That would be where I'd be like, you'd probably veer to a pelvic PT at some point anyways, if you had some good people in your corner for recommendations. So you might as well just start there anyways. Yeah. I will say anecdotally, when I used to, I used to have chronic back pain from over-exercise, but one, and I got tons and tons of PT and it would always come back. And one thing that I started doing once I started being exposed to this information a little bit more, and this is post PT school, by the way, like we did not yeah. get enough education about this in physical therapy school at all. Totally. Um, but post PT school, I thought I was like, well, I've always been taught to like hold a Kegel. Okay. So I better be, I better always be doing that. I better always be like, have a strong public floor and be holding a Kegel. And after I was getting exposed to some of the stuff, I was like, what is, what if I just like relax it? And I started like intentionally, like trying to relax it more and just sort of like, let go. I cannot tell you how much that changed my back pain. Like, and it just goes to show like, there's something there that like my other PTs were not treating or even looking at and looking under the umbrella, looking under the hood like can make a huge difference in this area. So I just think it's awesome that, and I think we need to be building more awareness around it. So totally. I mean, I could go on all day about that, but yeah, yeah, like, and it's so frustrating to as a practitioner who would love to help like every single person in the world with their pelvic floor, because insurance, again, they follow the research, which is great, but because pelvic floor is so advancedly like it's advancing rapidly to the point where research is not keeping up. Like the research that we have on it is still five years behind in terms of like the productive research on the stuff we are actually like practicing in clinic. 
And so we're not going to get backed by insurance until they speed that process up, if ever. And so it's not accessible to everybody because of financials and also the information because insurance doesn't, you know, most people just don't know we exist because they're not being told by insurance companies or their doctors. And it's just, it's a whole thing. So yeah, I totally agree. Which is why I love your Instagram because you're educating people who may, who may not have access to this and just like starting to learn how to breathe starting to learn how that you don't need to be tight and like flexing your abdominals at all times, I think is, can be huge and at least get people started that might not have access. So I think you're doing awesome. Thanks. So there you have it. I hope you enjoyed part one of my conversation with Dr. Amelia. If you want to work with Dr. Amelia, she sees people virtually. So I'm going to put her information in the show notes. If you want to follow her on Instagram, she's also a great follow. So check the show notes for the information on that. And we will see you all next week for part two of this conversation where we focus more on pre and postnatal.